This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, looking tonight at verses 1 through 2. 12, 1 through 2. Hear the Word of God. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. Father, as we take up the study of your word tonight, we pray for your help, we pray for your spirit's light and assistance, and pray that you would press home by your spirit the truth of your word in our hearts, and we ask it in Christ's name, amen. In many ways, someone would not be off the mark if they accused the United States of being a sports-crazy nation. It's interesting to watch that phenomenon known as the Super Bowl, where people who may not necessarily know what a first down is uh, are suddenly caught up in the uh, the hype of, of the moment and the, and the fun of the get-togethers and so forth. But certainly sports play uh, a large role in the life of our nation, for better or for worse. However, there is nothing unique in that uh, around the world or throughout history. As you go back in history, even back to the days of the Apostle Paul, the days of the Roman Empire, in many ways the Roman Empire was also a sports-crazy society. Uh, It's not coincidental that we find in the writings of Paul so many athletic illustrations, so many allusions to uh, the realm of sport. In fact, uh, at the end of this letter, and we could trace this through a number of Paul's letters, but uh, not, not Hebrews, the end of Second uh, Timothy, we're studying on Sunday morning. Uh, Paul not only begins to draw to a close the letter, but uh, to summarize the, uh, the, the end of the course of his life by saying, I have fought the good fight, an athletic sports metaphor. I have finished the race, another Athletic metaphor, I have kept the faith. Well, not Paul writing, I'm convinced, but here in Hebrews, uh, the writer of the Hebrews takes up that same illustration 
uh, and uh, of the of the race, uh, the metaphor for the Christian life that Paul is fond of, and uh, uses it to put before us uh, what it is that we are about as believers. A lot of metaphors could do, of course, but one of Paul's favorites, and and one that the writer of the Hebrews uses here, is that of the arena, that of the uh, the field or the track of competition. Now, as we come into verse 12, I want to look at it, uh, just kind of break it up to, to organize our minds uh, in thinking about it. First of all, to think about the witnesses that he describes here. Uh, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and it doesn't strain the imagine too much, uh, imagination too much to picture uh, an arena, and to picture competitors on the floor of the arena, on the field, and to picture the spectators gathered in the seats to watch the event, to cheer on the event, and that's the very picture that the writer to the Hebrews draws from as he puts this before us. So the picture here is is of an arena, a race to be won, but he refers to this great cloud of witnesses. Well, who are they? Well, the therefore should uh, should make it plain. He's pointing back to chapter 11. He's referring to all of these figures that we've been studying over the last number of weeks from chapter 11. These uh, uh, figures from the Old Testament that demonstrate what it means to live by faith. Some he spent more time on. Some he merely mentions their names. But then he goes on to say, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. So it seems that the witnesses he has in mind are those from chapter 11. But the big question when we, when we think about that is, in what sense are they witnesses? I guess the thing that would come to mind most quickly would be, that they are witnesses in the sense of spectators, that they they watch us to see how we perform. Now, in the metaphor, that makes sense. That's that's what spectators do at a, at a football game, a basketball game, a baseball game, a track meet. We we watch, we witness what is taking place. We observe it. We see it. In the metaphor, that makes a lot of sense. In reality, though, it becomes problematic. Is Moses watching you to see how you run the Christian race? Is Abraham keeping it on us to see what we do? It raises a much bigger question. Do, do those who have died in the Lord know what's going on in our lives? That's a difficult question. My inclination is to think probably not. But if we take witnesses in that sense, are they watching us? Are they cheering for us? Well, then you you get into that rather difficult problem. Uh, our, Our loved ones who have gone to be with the Lord are not omniscient. They don't become God. Uh, And how much they are aware of what goes on with us is difficult to say. Although, again, I suspect not too much, if at all. 
So how else might we consider them to be witnesses? In the metaphor, they are. They're watching us. But the word witness itself has a different sense. What are they witnessing to? To witness can mean, in a passive sense, to observe, to look at something, to witness it. You know, I, I witnessed this. I saw this wedding take place. I'm a witness to it. But the word witness also carries with it a more active sense of bearing witness to something, bearing testimony to something, a witness in a court of law who not only saw something take place, but on the stand actively testifies to what he saw, to what she saw take place. And in fact, the word witness is the word from which that is used in the original is the word for which our word martyr comes. Now, to be honest, at this point, it probably didn't have that sense, although later, a century or so later, the word began to take on the idea of what we would think of as martyrdom, of, of, of bearing testimony to something with your own blood, being a witness in that extreme sense. So another sense in which these, these, uh, these heroes of, of chapter 11 are witnesses is that they bear testimony to Christ, and they bear testimony to what Christ can do in the life of the one who believes in him, who trusts in him, who lives by faith. So we need to recognize that use of the word witness. It's easy to think, well, they're sitting watching us. And in the metaphor, that probably is the case. But the the true sense in which they are witnesses, I think, is not so much of observing us, but that their lives witness to the power of God in those who live by faith. In other words, they show us, they testify to what can be. They expand our conception of what the Christian life can be. And we need that. In your own experience, maybe you've, you've seen something of that. Uh, for example, in high school and college, I played the trumpet. Enjoyed playing it. Every now and then I still pull it out, play some. Um, then I practiced and I, I've worked hard at it uh, and enjoy doing it. But you know, if all I ever heard was my own playing, I might think, well, I'm doing pretty well. Yeah, I've mastered this piece. I can play that. Yeah, I can get above high C, whatever it might be. But then you hear... A Doc Severinsen, whom I had the pleasure of hearing live one time. Or you hear Wynton Marsalis. You hear something, you hear someone play at, at that level. And you think, I never knew a trumpet could do that. It expands the imagination. It, it shows what's possible. And I took piano lessons as a child. Uh, I've enjoyed working at that some, playing at the piano in some ways, maybe more than playing the piano. But, you know, I, I do that and, and make progress and, and I'm happy when I'm able to get through a piece or whatever it might be. But, you know, we come here, we hear Jessica play, hear Robin play, hear Michelle play, Tom play, or, you, or, or Stephen Nielsen, who came and played at the Aletheia Forum not too long ago. And it's the same kind of thing. You think, wow, you know, it is amazing what can be done 
It's amazing what can be accomplished on a piano or on a violin or some other instrument or in some vocation, you know, in business. What a, what a, what a Bill Gates or a Steve Jobs can accomplish showing what really can be done. And, and they're not even the limit. You know, there's still more to do. Well, I think that's the sense in which these witnesses are valuable to us. Not so much that they're watching us, which, at least in my case, has to be a rather discouraging observation. But they testify to us what God can do in the lives of those who trust in him. We are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses who don't witness us, but they witness to Christ. They witness to the life of faith and should inspire us and show us what is possible, just like listening uh, to a Wynton Marcellus on the trumpet should say, wow, you know, that, that inspires to, to strive harder because of what can be done. So they witness. These are the witnesses. But then he goes on to talk about the encumbrances still in this, in this race metaphor. Since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, since we have this picture of what can be, of how someone really can run the race, then let us also, along with them, let us also do a couple of things. Lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. First place, he says, if we're going to run this race, we need to lay aside every weight. Now, you typically don't see someone running a race in a, in a suit, uh, you know, a, a, a wool suit suit of armor. Uh, someone doesn't run the, 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 the 400 meter in the Olympics with a 60 pound backpack. Uh, they don't have weights on their ankles and heels. In fact, they strip down. They're we- wearing the lightest clothing possible. In fact, in uh, the first century, they just stripped down and ran. Uh, but they, they take away as much weight as possible to be able to run fast. Now, when he says, let us lay aside every weight, he's talking, of course, about any kind of clothing or whatever that would weigh them down. The word actually could also just, it refers to mass. It could just also refer to, to the extra weight of body fat, which too, if someone's going to compete well, they have to try to, to get as much weight off there as possible too, not just what they're wearing, but their body itself to get it as lean, light, and fast as possible. Now, there's nothing wrong with wearing a three-piece suit. There's nothing wrong with wearing a suit of armor or carrying a 60-pound backpack or being a few pounds overweight. But it does hinder if you're trying to go fast. And you look at that in terms of the Christian life, uh, we could draw that application, carrying the analogy over to things in our lives that, that are not sinful, things that are not blameworthy, and yet maybe things that are distracting you away from Christ, things that are slowing you down in your pursuit of Christ, you're running the Christian race. It could be all kinds of things, uh, everything from, from our own engagement in, uh, in, in sports to, uh, to technology. Um, it's amazing how perusing blogs can be a wonderful substitute for prayer and meditation on the word myself if I let it. Uh, those kinds of distractions, there's nothing wrong with it. Learn a lot of good things from reading blogs. But um, 
at the same time, does that become a substitute for my own personal interaction with the Word and for prayer and for meditation and my own writing and thinking? Uh, it can be. It can slow me down in that way. It can slow you down in that way. So thinking about things that are good in and of themselves, but may have either either taken such space in your life that they are proving to become to be a hindrance uh, to pursuing Christ, to your marriage, to your time with your children, whatever it might be. Um, but it goes on beyond that to say every weight and and just comes right out and says sin, which clings so closely. Now sin is is something, of course. Wicked, something itself that is wrong, something that should have no place in our lives, that we repent of, that we excise from our lives. Uh, perhaps if the, the metaphor clinging so closely, maybe uh, wearing the, the longer robe or toga-like garment that uh, can't get your legs free. Well, nothing wrong with that, but uh, as it represents sin, it's something that has to be taken off, be got rid of, to be put aside uh, in order not to be encumbered, in order to not have that clinging and dragging us down and slowing us down. And sin does that. It, uh, it, it either creates a painful conscience for the Christian, which makes it hard for us to serve Christ and follow him joyfully. Uh, worse, it cauterizes the, Christ, the, the conscience of the Christian. It hardens us and uh, dulls us to the promptings of the Holy Spirit indulges us in, in hearing God's word and what he's saying to us. So the only answer to sin is, is, is true and genuine and God-given repentance, uh, putting it aside, replacing it, remembering Paul's principle of, of putting off and putting on, not just saying no to certain things, but saying yes to other things that we, that we employ in our lives and, uh, and running the race. So there, there is the encumbrance of things that are good in and of themselves, and yet come hindrances, but also certainly those things that are sinful, that cling closely to us, that drag us down, that need to be put off. So the witnesses, we've seen the encumbrance, as he talks about, but then also his exhortation, having basically qualified up to this point, since we have these witnesses, uh, let us lay aside the weights just like they did and run the, and then the, the exhortation, uh, the end of verse one there. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Uh, we need to recognize, uh, that there is a course, a race set before us. The Christian isn't just treading water. We're pilgrims. We're going somewhere. There is a course. There is a direction to go in. Uh, some up for, for all of us, some of it's the same. Uh, the general need to grow in grace. Sanctification, worship, repentance. That's true for every Christian. Uh, but in many ways, our courses are unique. They have been established for us by God. Uh, it goes back to, to John 21, referred to it not too long ago, where, uh, where Jesus and Peter are talking, and uh, Jesus has, has restored Peter and uh, indicates the manner in which Peter would die. And, and John, who's following along behind them, uh, Peter refers back to him and says, well, Lord, what about him? And uh, Jesus says, well, if I want him to remain until I come again, what's that to you, Peter? You follow me. And Jesus is effectively saying, Peter, I've, I've got the race I marked out for you that's going to involve a difficult finish line. And I have a course marked out for John that won't be what I have marked out for you. But what his course is, is none of your concern. You just run your course, Peter. You just follow me. And that's effectively 
uh, what he's talking about here. Run with endurance the race that's set before us. For some of us, part of it's the same. Again, repentance, faith, obedience, and we encourage and help each other out in that. But also, each one of us has a distinct course. It may be relatively smooth for many. It may be pretty rocky for others that the Lord has put before us. But notice what he says. Let's run with endurance. This, it's the same word uh, that you that we saw this morning in, in 2 Timothy 3, verse 10, where Paul is listing out the things that, Tim, that Timothy has seen in him. And Paul refers to, uh, he says, my steadfastness. It's exactly the same word. Uh, in Greek that, that appears here that's translated with endurance. Uh, this is not a sprint. It's a long race. And any of you runners know that uh, that when you run distances, sometimes it just calls for endurance. It just calls for continuing to put one foot in front of another and just keep going when every cell in your body seems to, think, seems to be uh, shouting at you, boy, it sure would feel nice to stop. Sure would feel nice just to stop and walk a little bit or sit down or take a break. And then your brain starts arguing with your body and you're trying to ignore the whole thing and just keep going. If you, if you run distance, you, you know that. You know that sensation of your brain and your mind arguing with your body. It takes endurance. It takes steadfastness. It takes perseverance, which implies it's not easy. We shouldn't be surprised that it's not easy. The whole Bible, from Jesus to Paul to everybody else, chapter 11, Hebrews tells us it's not an easy race. There will be times when we are running and enduring and just persevering in steadfastness, this course that the Lord has before us. But the good news is our focus, and we see that in verse 2. We've seen the witnesses, the encumbrances, uh, the exhortation to run it and run it with endurance, but we're also not alone in it. We have this focus, verse 2, uh, that we're looking at. Looking, he says, to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. First of all, he, he calls our attention to Jesus' identity. He is the founder. He is the perfecter of our faith. Uh, that key word faith, of course, points back to chapter 11, but it's Jesus who started it through his, through his own course, uh, living his own life of obedience and endurance and ultimately going to the cross for us. And through his death and resurrection has founded his new covenant church. This, as we saw in the Lord's Supper this morning, Jesus said, is the blood of the covenant. It's the new covenant in my blood. Uh, it has continuity with the old covenant, but it's not the blood of a goat. It's the blood of Jesus himself putting into effect the new covenant. So he is the founder of our faith in that he is the one who inaugurated the age of the spirit, the new covenant, and the perfecter of it. Sanctification is as much a work of grace by faith as justification. It's Jesus who is at work with us. Now, in, in sanctification, we cooperate with the Holy Spirit through the means of grace that God has given to us, the word and prayer and fellowship and sacraments, church, uh, these ways that God has given us. And we use those and employ those in our lives, looking to Christ in faith. He is at work. He is the perfecter 
of our faith. He who began a good work in us will carry it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. He is at work in us, even as we use those means. So his identity, as, as we're running, we're focusing our eyes on something. And if you've run distances, you know that sometimes it's helpful just to pick a point in the distance and just concentrate on getting to it. And when you reach it, pick another point in the distance and just concentrate on getting to that point. Well, in running the Christian race, we've picked out Jesus. We're looking at him and we keep running until we get to him. Because of his identity, but also, verse 2, because of his victories. We focus on Jesus. We focus on his victory. Who for the joy that was set before him endured, same word, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Endured the cross. He despised its shame, and it was shameful. It was embarrassing. It was humiliating. It was a a, 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 a vile stigma attached to being crucified, not just because of the physical agonies of it, misery of it, but because of the social statement that it made, that you were a worthless ne'er-do-well uh, who deserved nothing better than to be nailed to a stick and held up for everybody to see and mock and in ridicule. But he despised that, was willing to put up with that, and endured the cross. Why? For the joy that was set before him. Now, I once heard this answer, and, and if again, if you run, it makes sense. Why do you run? Because it feels so good when I stop. You know, and it does. So you finally reach the end and you could stop, you know, and you made it. You got, you feel good. You're tired and you stop and it's just a great feeling. You got the run in, you, you finish the race, whatever it might be. It's a, it's a great feeling. Why do we run the Christian life? Because it's going to feel so good when we stop, when we cross the finish line, when we reach the end and we think, you know, I had to push on through it. It was hard. Wasn't sure if I could make it. But I'm sure glad I made it because it feels so great now. Only thing is, that'll be the, the great uh, bliss of glory. Far better than crossing any, any finish line, any marathon's finish line. Uh, but Jesus did that first. He endured. He ran his race for that joy that awaited him at the end. And he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God as a result. And he has a people that he has won for himself because he ran the race with endurance. Well, you and I are running a race not to secure the salvation of someone else, but laying hold of that salvation that Jesus has for us. And we need to keep our eyes fixed on the one who has run it ahead of us and who is there waiting for us and who is encouraging us along the way. Writer of the Hebrews takes up this metaphor of the race. Paul takes up this metaphor of the race. Why? Because it's such an apt illustration of the Christian life. There's so much to running a race that carries over into living the Christian life. It's just a ready-made analogy, a ready-made picture of what it means to run the Christian race. So how are you running? How are you running? 
Are you sprinting along right now, feeling good, making great time? Are you struggling over some pretty bumpy ground, risk of twisting an ankle or, or falling or worse? How are you running? Well, remember the witnesses we have, not so much who are watching us, but who show us what's possible, who themselves ran some pretty bumpy courses, and yet, by God's grace, persevered in living by faith. Are there encumbrances in your life that are slowing you down, that are a hindrance to you in following Christ? You need to get rid of those, deal with those. Remember his exhortation here to run, and we are going to have to run with endurance. We'll get tired. We'll become weary. We'll get discouraged. We may hear encouragement to quit coming from our weary body, so to speak, and, and wrestling and fighting with that. How are you running? Where's your focus? Sometimes we struggle running the Christian race because we've taken our eyes off Jesus. We've begun to look at ourselves. We've begun to look at our problems. We've begun to look at the race course. We've begun to look at other runners, comparing ourselves. Get your eyes off all of that. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who is now seated victorious at the right hand of God. Continue to fix your eyes on him, looking to him. He'll give you the grace you need to run well and to finish. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for calling us to yourself. Lord, whatever the analogy might be, that of running a race, that of being a pilgrim, uh, as Paul's analogy even of the boxer, uh, fighting. Father, we pray for grace to live this life that you've called us to with endurance. Thank you, Lord Jesus, above all, for showing us what can be. And for all these great witnesses of chapter 11 who do inspire us, who show us what is possible to the one who truly trusts in you, looks to you, and lives by faith. Lord, may that be true of me. May that be true of each one of us. And all to the glory of Christ forever. We pray it in his name. Amen.